Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We are on the second side of the NBA season, the second half. I will not spend time quibbling over the fact that really we're like 60%, 65% of the way done with the regular season and how stupid the NBA schedule is. But while we're talking about it, the NBA schedule is really stupid, uh, including putting the in-season tournament within the first 25 games of the NBA season. I I think you might actually have more success if you took the, took the game that we're not talking about because only hacks talk about the All-Star game and how to fix it. If maybe you took that put it 25 games in the season and put the in-season tournament smack dab in the middle of the... And by the way, it's still probably going to suck. I don't know what to tell you. It's still... You might have more guys that are healthy, but like it's still probably going to be the all-star game in the in-season tournament. Now, I digress because we'd have to get to the Cavaliers. And I made... The first segment here is going to be a kernel of something I said. We're going to build off something, a kernel of something I said with Daryl last week. And it... And it harkens back to the idea of expectations and there's a temptation when you do a show like this especially if I'm solo today to go all right we're the two seed is it is it the playoffs what are you judging success in the second half of the season on and I'm here to tell you guys you shouldn't choose one thing um if they finish with a top two seed guys it's really great it really that'd be a real accomplishment whether Giannis and the Bucks figure it out or not whether uh, they push the Celtics for the one seed. If they finish with a top three, top four seed in the Eastern Conference, even though the Bucks are where the Bucks are, even though 76ers have Joel Embiid hurt, and, and who knows if they can stay a top six seed without Joel Embiid, um, it really looks like the Celtics and the rest of the East at this moment. Even, even the Cavs are put kind of into that other category because the Celtics have kind of separated themselves as clear and away the best regular season team to this point. But like, it'd be great if you got the two seed. But that that's meaningless if you don't have postseason success. And if getting if you don't do anything with the two seed, there's another conversation to be had there about, okay, well, you're the two seed. Why didn't you do more than you did? So in a way, it only heightens the expectations. So I think the next three months to four months are maybe the most important four months since, or this most important stretch of time since Kyrie asked for a trade. You damn near traded Kevin Love for Paul George in the summer of 2017. And within six months, Kyrie was gone and you had rebuilt your roster two times over. And then you ended up losing in the NBA finals later that year and losing LeBron. If, if Dan Gilbert's leadership had allowed them to keep Kyrie Irving, I don't know 2018 ends as poorly with you losing LeBron and then being stuck with the lesser of the big three, Kevin Love being the only guy left from that team of your superstar players. Um, if you had pulled off the Paul George trade for Kevin Love in a first-round pick, I, that there's another thing. There's another what-if domino. And I think part of the reason why Cavs fans have been stuck in this mode of, I just want to enjoy it is that I think you understand, and I think we all understand, it. it is an unspoken thing 
that on one hand, we're terrified that this team isn't going to show up in the playoffs, which is a valid concern after the way last year went. And the other way is we also understand the importance of this playoffs. And I think the importance of going deep into the playoffs and what a what a Eastern Conference Finals run or an NBA Finals would, would basically mean to this team, even if you don't win it, just going that deep in the playoffs at either the third round of the playoffs or the final round of the playoffs would be gigantic because it would change the way people think about the Cavs organization. It would change maybe the way Donovan feels. And I don't want to say change. It would it would encourage Donovan to look at Cleveland as his long-term destination. And and maybe it, at the very least incentivize him to sign the contract extension this offseason and then play wait and see for the next two years. Maybe get you an extra year with Donovan to see what you do on the other side. So it's almost impossible to to talk about the weight and explain the, the weight of the next 30-plus regular season games and, and really the postseason for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And some of that is just the, the blatant fact you did diddly squat in the playoffs last year. You had home court advantage. You were one of the four best teams in the East, and you got bullied, beat up, and everything. I'm not trying to relitigate that, but it is important context because I think that was the moment where everybody, all the Cavs fans out there, including myself, turtled. And we stopped treating the Donovan trade for what it is. The Donovan trade is the single ballsiest, most comprehensive, look at me, put them on the table move in Cavs history since they traded for Larry Nance or or brought LeBron James back. And with that comes expectations. But because they lost in the playoffs to the way they did, we've all turtled. And it's funny, like, I, I've been listening to everybody over the last couple of weeks. And this morning it was with JP and, and, and AB, which sounds like a, like a kid's program. It's AB and JP in the mornings. Um, but listen to Andy Baskin and, and Jonathan. And they, they did the same thing I think Daryl was doing and has been doing with me the last couple of weeks. And what I've heard everybody else, well, it'd be really nice just to get to the second round. Guys, let's be real honest here. Two years ago when they made that trade for Donovan Mitchell, if I had said, all right, you're going to get into two years, a pivotal summer, going into a pivotal summer for Donovan Mitchell, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the future direction of the organization, and you'll have won one playoff series, would we have would would we have felt as confident about that deal? Would we have would we have puffed out our chest and been as excited about the next two seasons? No. So why are we selling short those expectations now? And again, I do understand the why. The why is we all got shook in how badly this team played and how badly they turtled in the, that first round series against the Knicks. So it is completely logical to all of a sudden, we're not going to talk mess and we're not going to buy into any of this stuff until we see it in the postseason. But that doesn't change the expectations we had two years ago. And guys, listen, has Evan taken the, the big third year jump that we were hoping for? No. The three-point shooting is a nice run here, and I hope it stays. Um, has Darius continued up that 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 ridiculous pace that he had last year where he was had similar numbers to two years ago, but once you dug into the efficiency, was a far more efficient player playing next to, to Donovan Mitchell? Well, no, he's had injuries this year. Am I any closer to the truth about whether you can win with two ball-dominant guards and whether you can keep this momentum up of the 18 of 20 games and the the the, the overlaps in your bigs. No, 
But that doesn't change the the number one thing. When we traded for Donovan Mitchell, the expectation was you were going to be a real contender in the Eastern Conference. So it doesn't matter what happened last year in the playoffs. What matters is where they're going now. And so because they turtled in the playoffs, we have to do the opposite. We have to hold firm on the expectations, and we can't live in our fears. Listen, guys, it's really okay. We get into this thing of, well, did you meet expectations, yes or no? So then we lower our expectations so we don't, we don't feel the need to be disappointed. But, guys, that's the point of trading for Donovan Mitchell. You didn't trade for Donovan Mitchell, so two years later we could be talking about having to turn around and trade him again. This whole two years, it's always been an audition. It's always been, uh, can we keep him and can we build into a sustained contending team in the Eastern Conference? And at least as of right now, the path is there. Giannis and the Bucks don't know their head from their ass. Uh, Doc Rivers is telling everyone why he didn't want to take the job. He's been on the job for five games. Joel Embiid, uh, Joel Embiid who you do nobody in the East, has a real answer for Joel Embiid. Not even Miami with Bam, except maybe Milwaukee. So Joel Embiid might be out the rest of the season, could be out until the very end of the regular season. So two of the most formidable teams, two of the kings, two of the hunted teams in the Eastern Conference are down bad. So that's an opportunity for the Cavs, for the Knicks, for the Pacers. Uh, I don't know they're going to do it, but for the Heat, for every team that has a legitimate chance to be something in the East, the path is there. And you have the hottest team in the NBA. So I understand if we all want to turtle, I'm here to say, guys, we got to stop it. I'm not, this isn't the same as we got to pound our chest and just wait to the Eastern Conference Finals like with LeBron or just wake me up when the NBA Finals start. It's, that's not the same thing. But there's something in between. We are the biggest, baddest, and the most dangerous team in the NBA or in the Eastern Conference. And, oh, gosh, it's just nice to be here. I think it's time to act like we belong. And how do you act like you belong going to the second half? You have real expectations for the team. So when I say the expectation is make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, I'm leaving room where the context, if, if let's say you don't make it there, the context becomes whether I should be disappointed or not. If you lose in a pivotal game seven to Giannis in the Bucks in the second round of the playoffs, I can't be disappointed. It's Giannis, friggin' Antetokounmpo, okay? And it's game seven. That's completely different than if you get bounced out in the first round or the second round and at any point lose in five games when you have home, uh, home court advantage and when you have everything going in your favor outside of playoff experience like you did last year. So I get the, oh, I just want to enjoy it. I just want it. Guys, cut. We got to cut it out. It makes no sense. It is time to start acting like the Cavaliers are what they have been through the first 50 games of this season, the number two seed in the Eastern Conference, and until proven otherwise, the hottest team in the East and maybe in the NBA across the last 20 games. I get we don't want to be disappointed. I think it would be really disappointing if we just got through the next two years and lost Donovan Mitchell because, well, it was just good to be there. Yeah, you know what? We're just happy to kind of be there. That's not how I want the Cavs organization to act. I don't think it's how you and I should act. 216-474-0092. Where do you set – I don't want to say set these second-half expectations. Where do your second-half expectations begin? Whether that's in the postseason, whether that's in the regular season. 
because I care about getting the two seed. I care a hell of a lot more that this team acts and goes out and plays like a two seed into the postseason and beyond, whether they end up being the three seed or the two seed or the four seed. The two seed is that thing that makes you feel good in the offseason when you get your ass kicked in the playoffs. That's nice. It doesn't mean a damn thing if you don't go ahead and do something in the postseason. That's where we are. I think sometimes we do the thing of, well, I just really want to like the team, and then I'll just be happy with whatever. That's not really kind of how this works. Expectations matter for a reason, and expectations and accountability do go hand in hand. That also doesn't mean, well, they didn't meet the expectations, so fire everybody. That's sports talk mentality. That's 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 come up the last 30 years, 40 years with the growth of sports talk. That's not always aligned with reality. And good organizations can say, well, we didn't meet expectations. Why? But I don't see any reason why we should think the Cavs don't meet expectations if you set them high. Like, well, all the all the little generalities that they've had. Well, but you know, undersized backcourts. Okay, but there have also been undersized backcourts to make the conference finals before. Also, um, you know, Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum never had Evan Mobley. It, it, honestly, they never even had a player like uh, Jared Allen after Lamarcus Aldridge left. We've archived all the past episodes so you can hear what you missed, but don't miss the next live episode of Carmen and Lima's emerging podcast scene. Tuesday morning at 10.15, presented by Extend Technologies on the 92.3 The Fan Extra Channel, part of the free Odyssey app. And here's why I think it matters. I think people want this thing to go linearly. I want. I think people want, well, okay, you lost in the playoffs last year. So let's, next year, you know, this year we'll go to the second round. And then maybe next year we'll go to the third round. And then maybe, uh, maybe, maybe two years from, maybe the NBA Finals. That's just not how it works. The Boston Celtics made four straight Eastern Conference Finals runs before they ended up getting into the finals for the first time with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown three years ago. So that was four straight years with that young core where they and the first two years were the Cavs, and then it was, I think, Milwaukee and Toronto or strike that and reverse it. And there was one of those years in between where they ended up topping out in the second round. And they could have traded Jalen Brown, or they could have traded Jason Tatum. They could have chose between those two. Instead, they did what pretty much every NBA team with this kind of talent around them, they continued to build and push until they got the team that got them into the NBA Finals. This year feels like the best iteration. This has been, this thing with the Celtics, guys, It's if they win the NBA Finals this year, it'll be a culmination of roughly seven years of building from the time they drafted Jalen Brown one year, Jason Tatum the next year, and then there was the Kyrie trade, which could be our iteration of the Donovan trade for all we know going forward, where it was too much too soon and it just didn't fit their timeline. Now, the difference is Kyrie left them high and dry. I don't think we have to worry about that with Donovan, who actually has a little class to him and a little decorum, and you can trust him if he says, I want to be here, that he would be here. Unfortunately, Kyrie is like the weather vane. He'll go whichever ever way the wind blows on any given day. And by the way, his prerogative. That's how the NBA works now. But my point is, like, there's a lot of moving parts with the Cavaliers, and I think it's just important that you, you get to the Eastern Conference Finals as quick as humanly possible. But I don't think it's just for the obvious reasons. The obvious reasons are things like Donovan Mitchell's future. And can we get him, can we flip him to a hard commit to Cleveland long-term? 
That's something that I think either making the NBA Finals or Eastern Conference Finals matters for this year specifically. And why we shouldn't just be, ah, whatever happens, it's okay. So that matters. I think the Cavs coaching situation, the sooner you realize, listen, going to the Eastern Conference Finals, I might still have questions about J.B. Bickerstaff. But you go to the Eastern Conference Finals, even though I have those real questions about, well, is the kind of coach that's going to win you a series? He will have won two series to get there. I can at least back off and feel more safe with J.B. as the coach. Roster construction, do you have to choose between Donovan and Darius? Do you have to choose between Jarrett and Evan? Those questions soften a little bit the deeper you go into the playoffs. Those are the obvious things at stake if you can make a deep playoff run. There's one that I don't think we've talked nearly enough about. We're going to get to that in just a second here, but as we start to set the second-half expectations, I am very curious where you guys are focused on. Are you focused on the two-seed? Are you playoff or bust? And I want to know if you guys are going along with this kind of what I think is a company line. I don't mean that in like a bad way, but I think the Cavs have been smart to slow play expectations because they know expectations can get you fired in the NBA. I just have been patient with my expectations. I think we all have. I think that time for patience is over because of everything I just described about what's riding on a deep playoff run. And here's the other reason. Guys, the Cavs are the second best team in the Eastern Conference. So that's the kind of thing you can say. There's valid proof to show that they belong in that conversation. Right now, not a damn person in the NBA. Not, I shouldn't say not a damn person. Consistently across the board, people are treating you like the little engine that could instead of one of the team that deserves to be in the conversation. David, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Hey, how you doing? Very good. Welcome to the show. Um, I just wanted to say uh, before when you were talking about the whole Donovan trade, um, I totally agree with you. I I mean, when they traded for him, I'm sure it, in the back of their minds, they weren't saying, okay, we're going to trade for Donovan and we're going to just hope to make it to the second round and be content with that. And the other thing I wanted to say was I also agree with you. There's no reason that they should settle for anything less than the second seed. Because unless the Celtics have like a total free fall and they just suck the rest of the year, I I don't think they're going to catch the Celtics for the one seed. So they should aim for the second seed. David, appreciate you, buddy. Thank you very much. 216-474-0092 if you want to hop in like David. And Nick Wilson says if you want to hop in uh, on X or my Instagram DMs. I'm a married man, but uh, you can still slide in. Shoot your shot, king or queen. Shoot your shot, I say. And, of course, social media reactions on X powered by Shivan Jewelers, Cleveland's premier jewelry store. And I think Evan Mobley, to me, is why a deep playoff run matters more than anything. And I think he's the thing we're not all thinking about. Because I think people have done this thing where, and, I, and by the way, it's not just him. Tim Bontemps, who we've got on in, in 15 minutes, at one point called Evan Mobley his most disappointing player in the NBA developmentally because he didn't take the big third-year jump that everyone had hoped at the beginning of the season. And I continue to wonder, and it's not a no. I, 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 I think sometimes we're not curious enough about things. We don't, we don't open up the possibility to, well, this is what it is, but could it also be this? And so, like, I wonder how much of Evan's development has been impacted by learning to play with two ball-dominant guards and a center who he has some overlap with. It doesn't mean that they can't round off those edges and all play well together, 
but like, yeah, I, like in the case of Lamelo, guys, who the hell is 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 challenging Lamelo for the ball in in Charlotte? They don't win. Ter- even Terry Rozier was a guy that played off the ball with with Lamelo. Even Miles Bridge, all the guys they have around him, nobody's challenging Lamelo and getting in the way of his development. Um, Victor Wembanyama, they're not winning enough to have these questions about fit and all this because they're just learning to play together with him and Kelton Johnson and Vassell and all those other guys. So look at the the situation Evan Mobley was birthed into is pretty uncommon in the NBA, which is within the first three years of your career, you're winning more than you're losing and you have real playoff expectations. I mean, Anthony Edwards is finally there this year. He wasn't last year. They were they were more competitive, but the expectations were about Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins and the D'Angelo Russell and the seventy five iterations of players they put around Cat as they were for Anthony Edwards. So like nobody blamed Anthony Edwards for scoring a bunch of points, not playing great defense, and not becoming the full force that he is this year until this year. And even that, that success four years in. A lot of these guys in an era where teams are just, well, we're not tanking, but we're certainly not trying to win. We care more about development. The Cavs flipped that switch going into second year for for Evan Mobley. But I think the reason why the playoffs matter is this. I I think we've all slept on the fact that that third-year jump for Evan can still be coming. For one, one, I think the three-point shooting uh, in a limited basis has been brilliant. And I, I, for a for a kid who has talked about the key to confidence, I think the Cavs have done, and I want to laud JB because I've had my criticisms. I want to laud JB Bickerstaff for continuing to push him and put him into situations where he's getting those looks and feels comfortable to take those looks. So I already think we're kind of starting to see some of that offensive stuff that we were hoping for. It's not as fast, not as dominant as we'd hoped for. It's still you kind of see the raw makings there. But I think people forget how many times young guys get that first taste of a deep playoff run and how transformative it can be for young developmental players. Bam Adebayo was a guy who had a really nice, and I can't remember if it was the second or third season, really nice player. And that first deep playoff run, and I actually think it was during the the bubble, and you saw Bam Adebayo play as one of the five most dominant players in the NBA because the longer he got into that environment, he and he accustomed he became accustomed to the pressurized environment in the NBA playoffs, he acclimated. And so even though he hasn't kept that up, by the way, like he's been a really damn good player. He's one of their three most important players. But he didn't become one of the three most dominant bigs night in, night out in the NBA. But in that moment, you saw him take steps developmentally that honestly just don't happen in the postseason. And I think that's kind of what could be at stake for Evan. That doesn't mean I'm expecting him to all of a sudden he's going to score 30 points a night and 15 rebounds and all that. But like a lot of people, because he didn't storm out of the gates this year and he was the unicorn game one. Well, I guess he's not the unicorn. Well, I guess I guess his development will have to wait. That's not really how the NBA works. As a matter of fact, being in a winning situation, especially in the playoffs, tends to bring out development. And young bigs are a great starting point. That's not just young bigs. You can go back to the first exposure that Steph, Clay, and Draymond got in the playoffs. 
That's before they went to the uh, NBA Finals in 2015 and won. And by the way, that was fast-tracked. That was a team that went from eh, maybe a playoff team in a loaded West to being the NBA champions within like three years. That doesn't happen. But so much of that growth and development and them kind of bonding together in a real way was absolutely tied to them getting that taste of the playoffs together. So I look at this and listen, if you can go to the Eastern Conference Finals or more, and I think that should be the expectation. I don't think the expectation, I don't think we should be satisfied if they don't do that this year, depending on the context. Yep, you might have a better chance of keeping Donovan. Maybe it keeps Donovan in Cleveland. Yep, you probably have a better answer on JB and whether he's your coach going forward. Something tangible. Yep, you kind of have a better understanding about the pieces around Darius, Donovan, Jarrett, and Evan. But more importantly, this might be the next great opportunity for Evan Mobley to be the guy that he was drafted to be. And when that happens, guys, all of a sudden, the Eastern Conference Finals will look like like chump change compared to what you can do if Evan Mobley thrives in a playoff run. Because the only way you can beat Boston, like you can get to Boston without Evan Mobley becoming the unicorn and and having that that third year or that that play that deep playoff run jump. But the way you beat Boston is by Evan Mobley taking over a series. You don't do that unless he just continues to get one round, two round, three rounds under his belt. We're talking about uh, the second half expectations for the Cavaliers. We get to see really whether the Cavs can keep up that hot pace of 18 of the last 20 games uh, that they won at the end of the uh, the first half of the regular season. And to talk about that and more, we head out to the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline and welcome on ESPN NBA writer Tim Bontemps. Tim, welcome to the show. Oh, how you doing? We're doing pretty well here. I do. We need to change the the uh, the verbiage because it's not really the second half of the season since like sixty five percent of the NBA season has come and gone. Because I've seen a lot of old heads get really mad about calling it the the second half of the NBA season in line starting tonight for the Cavs. All I know is that I didn't get any time off this week, <laughs> and I'm back to work again today. And that's uh, that's all I really know. So it didn't seem like there was any first or second half for me personally. I uh, I feel like a lot of NBA reporters have to deal with the grind. I don't think people realize it's a break for only people like me who don't have to cover the team. Uh, and by the way, it's, <laughs> I said Cavs Bulls earlier. It's Cavs Magic tonight. Um, so I'm curious, yeah. you know, Cavs right now the two seed in the Eastern Conference. Do you view them as a legitimate two seed or do you – kind of view them as a benefactor of a step back, a momentary step back from the Bucks and Sixers? I mean, I guess so it depends on how you define a legitimate two seed, right? Like if you say, do I think they're a legitimate championship contender? I don't. Um, do I think they're going to finish as the two seed? I do, because I, I think that, or at least they have a very good chance to, um, because you know, I'm in Philadelphia to see the Knicks and Sixers and then the Sixers and Cavs tomorrow. And the Knicks and Sixers are both really banged up and the Bucks are going through all sorts of stuff. And the Cavs are, you know, relatively healthy and have their group together. And if they can you know, make it through a pretty condensed schedule here coming out of the break as part of their going to Paris last month, um, I think they're in really good position to be, the second seed in the East, and certainly that would give them, you know, the possibility of, you know, or what it would give them the reality of having home court through the first two rounds of the playoffs. And certainly, I don't need to tell you about how long it's been since they've won 
a playoff series without LeBron and certainly, you know, puts them in a position to have some success in the playoffs they haven't had in 30 years. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, I think as far as their playoff positioning, I absolutely think they're legitimately, you know, they have a really legitimate shot to be the two seed. And then as far as, you know, championship contingent, I think we still need to see how this looks in the playoffs before I'm going to really come anywhere near saying that, but it's, you know, it's again, for a group that has not had this kind of success without the guy from Akron in a long time, it's, you know, it's, it's really tangible progress and we'll see how the next couple of months shake out. Tim, you mentioned not thinking they're an NBA title contender. You can drop teams into specific buckets, NBA title contender, Eastern Conference Finals contender, you know, mm-hmm. playoff contender, all that. Is there anything the Cavs can do before the playoffs to show you that they are at the least an Eastern Conference Finals contender or maybe even an NBA title contender? It's hard for me to see the scenario where they're good enough to be a real title contender to me, almost regardless of what happens. Um, I think they could make the conference finals now, like especially if they get matchups to fall a certain way, because um, they are a very good team. And I do, I do think they will match up you know, favorably in certain matchups in the playoffs. I mean, look, I, I've been saying for a long time, the key really to their entire operation is Evan Mobley and whether he in particular can become a much more dynamic offensive player. And specifically if he he can become a much better and more consistent threat from behind the three point arc. Right. And obviously since coming back from uh, the knee surgery, he's hit some shots and he's taken a couple threes, which has been very encouraging. Um, You know, ideally he eventually gets to a place where he's taken four or five a game every game and is a real becomes a real weapon out there because I think that changes the long-term trajectory of having him and Jared Allen together, who has been playing out of his mind over the past couple of months while they didn't have Evan Mobley on the court. So I, I think in the longer term, you know, if over the next couple of months, Evan starts consistently shooting three to four threes a game, even if he's going one for four every game, if he's shot four threes a game for the next two months, I would feel a lot better about where the Cavs are going to sit in both the short and medium term as a contending team. Um, but look, I, it's like, it's also, it's also one of those things. It's like, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, who, where people rank on MVP lists, right? Like I know Donovan was talking about it last week after Bustropo came out. Like it's not a, it's not a shame to be the sixth or seventh best team in the league. Right. And like the Cavs are probably right now somewhere in the, like, you know, six to 10 range among teams in the league, which is really good. And, you know, especially if the East continues to be a morass of injuries and drama across the board, like if you told me that Celtics Cavs is the Eastern conference finals in late May, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So like, you know, I, I think the Cavs have certainly positioned themselves to have some real success this spring, and I, I'm, I'm genuinely pretty excited to see how the next couple months go. It's going to be very interesting to watch. Tim Bontemps, ESPN NBA uh, writer on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. You mentioned Evan Mobley. Some fans, uh, some Cavs fans took uh, 
uh, exception to what you said about uh, about Evan and his development in year three. Uh, this was before he came back from the injury, obviously. And I'm just, sure. I mean, I'm, you know, that we we tend to take a lot of things seriously as as most fans do. But I'm just curious, yes. from what you've seen since he came back off the injury, do you think? Do you, are you buying into this, even though it's a small sample size, that this could be the turning point for him in terms of what he does offensively? I mean, I guess, again, I'm not trying to parse words at all, right? But, like, I just need to see a lot more than a handful of games where he took a couple threes, right? Like, he needs to become a – I'm not saying he has to become Carl Anthony Pounds, but, like, he's got to become a consistent – threat with the ball from the perimeter. And like part of the reason I focused on him so much, and I know it has upset Cavs <laughs> fans. I understand that. I work yeah. with Brian Windhorst I, all the time. I know where the Cavs fans are at. Well, I, I mean, I, I just, I, Brian Windhorst is one of my best friends and we work together all the time. So I'm very aware of where the, uh, I'm very aware of where the Cavs fan psyche is at all times, but <laughs> I, I, the reason I've harped on his situation so much is because of it is really the critical question about the Cavs going forward, right? Because, like, when they made the Donovan Mitchell trade, they made that trade in large part as a bet on Evan Mobley, right? And, like, the idea that, hey, this is a super young, super talented guy that we think has a chance to be awesome right away, and could potentially look like, I mean, look, like the perfect vision of this team is Evan Mobley, to me, turns into a superstar power forward, right? And he becomes your number one player. And if he's your number one and Donovan's your number two, or you have two guys of that level, like then you're talking about a team that's a championship level team. And, you know, at this point, you know, we're like, what, I guess two and two thirds or two and three quarters of the way through his first three years in the league. And, you know, like if he was having the year that Scotty Barnes, for example, is having this year in Toronto, right. From a shooting perspective and an overall impact perspective, like I would be talking about the Cavs much differently. And I think a lot of people would be talking about the Cavs much differently. And instead Evans offense overall has, more or less been the same since his rookie year. Now, like I said before, he came back from the injury and he immediately started taking, you know, a couple threes every other game. I, I was immediately like, all right, this is a really good sign of progress. But to me, like, he, that's just got to get up to four or five attempts a game. So I know he's gone. I know he went two for 14. I remember exactly what he, I think he's maybe gone nine for 14 in the game since then or seven or something. So I know his percentage is up to like 41%. But you guys know, if you're averaging one three a game, if you're open, like teams aren't going to worry about guarding you from three. It doesn't matter if you're even making all of them, right? If you just stand out there and they throw you the ball and you shoot it and you make it one time, like if it messes up the team's spacing to leave that guy alone, they'll leave that guy alone and let him shoot it. So that's why to me, if he can, if he can become – a really dynamic all-around offensive threat to go with his length and defensive versatility and all the other stuff he provides, then you're talking about a guy that's living up to the 
you know, comparisons of being Chris Bosh, who I think is a criminally underrated player. And, you know, it's like, you know, it was truly a, you know, obviously a key part of four straight finals teams and two title teams with Miami. And it's like, if Evan Mobley becomes some version of Chris Bosh, which is what the hope was coming into the league, like the Cavs are a team with this core that you could look at and say, that's a team that's got a chance to win a title. If he's, you know, something less than that, the path to getting there is a lot more narrow. And some of that's just because winning a title is really, really hard. And there's a reason why only a handful of teams get to that level. But, you know, that's why I, that's why I paid so much attention to it. And to go back to your original question, I am encouraged with him shooting more um, coming out of the, the injury and into the break. But it's going to be one of the things I'm really paying attention to the most over the next six weeks across the entire league because, as we talked about at the beginning, the Cavs have a real opportunity to be the second seed in the East. They're going to have home court in the first two rounds. They should have a real opportunity to make the conference finals, which would be a massive accomplishment. And if Evan Mobley becomes a better offensive player between now and mid-April, the chances of them doing that go up significantly, and the chances of them taking further steps in the future also go up significantly. So I'm, I am encouraged by it, but I still want to see more, I guess is the ultimate answer. Tim? We appreciate you, buddy. Uh, we Really good stuff there. Uh, we'll be reacting to it for the next hour or so. And uh, again, man, uh, enjoy the second half. One of these days you'll get a, a break right around uh, June or maybe July or maybe even August. Yes, I would say about August 1st. Uh, <laughs> but thanks thanks for having me, guys. And uh, best of luck to the Cavs going forward. Thank you so much. Tim Bontemps there, uh, senior NBA writer for ESPN on the North Olmstead, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Ram, Hotline. I don't consider the Cavs. Like Tim, I don't consider them NBA Finals contenders yet. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. And the reason being is you ha- there's just certain steps that I have to see you consistently clear. And the number one thing is I can't say you're going to go to the NBA Finals and have a chance to win it until you actually go out there and, like, win a playoff series. So I, I, there's a part of me that thinks if you have a first-round series against a seven seed, if you are the two seed, and you just roll, like you sweep them, it's going to be tough to put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to expectations. I think, I think one of the best benefits of potentially being the two seed 
is you are going to probably get another young team like Orlando, who you play tonight and kick off the second half of the NBA season on, and that's just going to give you a, a softer launch into the playoffs. Yet you, it was a tough draw last year because Tom Thibodeau has been in the playoffs a lot in his career as a head coach, and guys like Jalen Brunson and a, and a few other other guys, they did have some playoff experience on their roster. And, and their style of play in terms of their physicality and and their ability to shut you down defensively, like those were things that made that a really tough first-round matchup. And you then just didn't play your best game. And you ran out of steam and you weren't ready for the moment. So, like, I do think one of the true advantages of being the two-seed is you at least have an easier path to that second round. And then the second round, I think you really find out who you are. But I, I think... And I don't, I don't want to make it seem like I'm saying this about Tim's analysis because I think I hear it in the NBA. The NBA is very much a superstar-driven league. The NBA is very much a wing-driven league. And because of that, I think, I, think, I think NBA analysts look at this and go, well, they don't have a dominant wing, and they don't have a guy that is definitively a top-10 player in the NBA – no matter if Donovan's the 11th best player in the NBA or not, but Donovan does not get superstar love. He gets star love. He gets, oh, yeah, he's really good, but he doesn't get like when the kind of just the, the pass that Kevin Durant does. The, the Suns, the super team of the Suns has not been good. They, they have not lived up to expectations. But I saw today, I think it was uh, Tim Legler called them one of the five title contenders in the NBA. And it's like, what have you watched? Like, yeah, hypothetically, you get Kevin Durant in a seven-game series. You get Kevin Durant and Bradley Beal and all these, and Devin Booker. Yeah, hypothetically, but the problem is they haven't done diddly squad compared to what they could have done in the regular season. But but Kevin Durant and Devin Booker and Bradley Beal, they've passed the test. It more It's more about Booker and, and Durant, by the way. But those guys, okay, well, they're wings and they're superstars. Okay, yep, they're NBA title contenders. So I think the Cavs, optically, no one's going to say the Cavs are NBA title contenders until they force you to believe it. In a way, I actually compare them to the Golden State Warriors before the Golden State Warriors broke through in 2015. No one took the Warriors seriously. Yeah, oh, that's a great story. That They won a bunch of regular season games because they play hard, but you can't shoot that kind of three ball. And in the postseason, the game, the game changes too much in the postseason. Now, what ended up giving out is they were phenomenally defensively and lethal with the three-point, and there was a run there where people forget Draymond shot about 35 36% over three years that completely elevated what they were able to do. And then they had guys like Iguodala, and then they had guys, I mean, they just cycled in guys that just were kind of the perfect fit for what they did. But, like, nobody gave the Warriors a chance to win the NBA Finals probably until Kyrie Irving got hurt. And even then, that second year, like they went out and won 73 games and there were still murmurs. Well, but if the Cavs were full strength, people forget when the Cavs won, even though the Cavs came back from 3-1. Well, see, this is what happens when you have a, a super team going up against a really nice team. Like guys, they there was doubt in the NBA cycle. No matter the fact that Steph was an MVP, no matter that Clay might be the most underrated second best player on a championship team in NBA history. It is comical how people have forgotten how lethal Clay was and how important he was to unlocking the best in Steph Curry because of his length and, and defense. 
And, like, there were so many reasons why Golden State was valid, but they didn't fit the archetype. So everything they did, they had to earn and then some. And then they added Kevin Durant, and then they're the greatest team ever in NBA history. Well, but you won 73 games. Yeah, you lost the NBA Finals. You still have all the – but now you got Kevin Durant. That's just how the NBA works. And I think the biggest thing working against the Cavs, and, and this is now turning into just a tangent, I don't think anyone's going to take the Cavs seriously post-LeBron until they actually go out there and pull the sword from the stone. I think I, – I th- and this is and this becomes the, the third part of this, which is there's no league that is hornier for big markets than the NBA. And it's just – it's the way it's been. Ever since – and it wasn't always this way, guys. My, my personal theory is it happened when the Lakers and the Celtics took over the NBA in the 1980s and you've had guys like Bill Simmons screaming from the rooftops about how the NBA's better when the Celtics and Lakers are are kings. And here's the thing. There's enough people that have bought into that. Never mind that the Chicago Bulls, who've had one legitimately amazing run in their entire in their entire run. The first 30 years, sorry, the first 20 years before Michael Jordan, not a lot. Not great, Bob. It was Artemis uh, Gilmore and the Bulls drug dealer. Those were the highlights of the first 20 years. Look at the look at the post Jordan years. That is an iconic run of a franchise that yes, it's big market, but outside of the Jordan run is not known to be a oh what a prestigious team. Nope. But people don't think about that. They don't think about LeBron's run in Cleveland. They think Lakers. They think Celtics. I think the Heat have become this way. Now the Warriors have become this way. Uh, the Knicks have all, I mean, the national media has, oh, well, anytime the Knicks get good, it's like when Texas gets good in football or Miami Hurricanes get good in college football. But are the Knicks back? Well, but they don't have a Kevin Durant. That's the only, as a matter of fact, that's the only team it doesn't matter if you don't have a Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, or Giannis. It's the only team. So I look at this and I do think like the narratives that go against the, the Cavs it is, well, you don't have a, a generational wing. You don't have – you've got two undersized combo guards. And look what happened with Dame and, and – and they hey, Portland, Cleveland, similar markets, right? And then you get to the third part. Everybody references, well, what have you ever done without LeBron? But because you are not in Chicago, now it's weaponized against you. And some of that is cynicism about the Gilbert ownership, which is fair until proven otherwise. They didn't fire anybody this year, which is pretty impressive because they could have fired guys like three times. But I think so much of what I hear is, yeah, okay. Yeah, they're nice. It's okay. I think some of that is you're comparing it against the one most obvious thing. In L.A., there are too many great runs. You got Shaq and Kobe. You got, um, you know, you got Magic and Kareem, right? You've got um, uh, Kareem when he was first there. You've got the Wilt Chamberlain run. You've got Jerry West. Like you have so many runs with Kobe and Powell. You've got so many runs. Even like even LeBron and AD. That's just a bubble championship, huh? They won an NBA title. What do you? Do? Well, but he's not a real Laker yet. What? What the hell are you talking about? So in in LA, there are too many things to point to. There are too many shiny objects and trophies to point to. To, to go ahead and weaponize that against the organization. It's been proven they can win too many times. In Cleveland, it is, yeah, LeBron, what have you ever done? And so I think that does shade the perspective of, yeah, they're just, they're, they're, they're happy to be there. 
Yeah, they're the two seed, but they're not an NBA title contender. And the one for one, and and I I understood what what Tim was saying, but I do think people across the NBA, including Tim, have been too freaking hard on Evan Mobley. And I agree with the the overarching sentiment, which is if they're ever going to win an NBA title in the next five years without LeBron James, and with this current cast, however it's going to look around Evan Mobley, it'll be because of Evan Mobley. This year, you want to make the NBA Finals, Evan Mobley taking over and in the NBA playoffs, that's a huge way to get to fast-track yourself to the NBA Finals. Doesn't guarantee you win in the Finals, but like that guy taking a gigantic step in a half season is huge for them contending. Three, whether it's two years from now, three years from now, this year, five years from now, them, him, it's, it's on him. And when he's ready, and he might be young, guys, but I think that's my frustration. Like... Tim was comparing Evan Mobley to Scotty Barnes. I really like Scotty Barnes, a hell of a basketball player. What outs, what are, how are their situations similar other than their third year players? Like Evan Mobley has to share the ball and share the offense and, and figure out how to be a transcendent offensive player with Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland next to him while sharing the lane and sharing similar spots on the court with another all-star level player in Jared Allen. Scotty Barnes can just go up and jack up 15 threes a game because Toronto ain't winning, they're not trying to win, and they just traded Pascal Siakam and damn near everybody else on their roster. So I'm not impressed that Scotty Barnes is attempting five three-pointers a game because who else is going to take those shots? So I and I don't mean to say this about what Tim thinks because he's valid. He watches as much NBA. The man is he has earned his bones as a NBA analyst, NBA writer. But how outside of the fact they're a third year players are they similar stories? If Evan Mobley didn't have Darius or Donovan to 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 wrestle the ball from him, it might be easier. Those shots might come to him more realistic or more. Uh, more early in his career. But since his second year in the NBA, he has been contending with two ball-dominant guards in an offense that's not helped either guard until this year or Evan or Jared. So, yeah, Scotty Barnes had a good third-year jump. I'm not buying. Well, Scotty Barnes did it, so Evan Mobley should. Contextually, Evan is in a tougher situation to make that jump, and it is on Evan. Inevitably, it is on Evan to to unlock the best version of himself. But the idea that, well, but look what Scotty Barnes did. Look at what player C did. Guys, it's not the same. Evan's trying to win. The Cavs are trying to win. And Evan's trying to take that big jump. It's a hell of a lot harder than I think, well, this guy in a non-winning situation. He, he did it, so why can't you? I think the answer is pretty damn obvious. I got to pick a fight with someone in the national media, but it's not our next guest. Uh, he is Yahoo Sports senior NBA writer on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. Dan Devine joins us now. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm glad to find out that I'm not the national media member getting a, fought, a fight picked with them. That's good to know. It'll be a, a, an awkward start to the interview. Well, I just I, I I thought about well maybe I should just start one just to throw them off you know always you're always trying to like 
make your make your guest either comfortable or uncomfortable to get the best answer. And then I was like, nah, Dan's a good guy. I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to start beef with Dan because I feel like if I start beef with you, everyone's gonna be like, what an a hole this guy must be. Well, I mean, my, my brand is like uh, overwhelming kindness. So, yeah, you, you're picking a fight with the wrong guy. I'd be like, you listen, man, I get it. I don't like me that much either. So I, w- I wouldn't blame you. Uh, Dan, look into the Cavaliers here. I, I'm curious whether you see the Cavs as a legit two seed in the Eastern Conference or feel as if they're the two seed or could be the two seed simply because the Bucks and Sixers have, di- have been disappointing. I mean, there's some truth to that. Obviously, the Bucks have been, uh, you know, uh, have been a frustrating kind of mystery. Uh, you look at them and say, like, are you the team that's, you know, 35 and 21 and has an MVP candidate and like an All NBA point guard, or are you the team that's got the point differential of like a 46 or 47 win team and can't seem to get both its offense and defense playing well at the same time for more than like a game or two in a row? Um, and then obviously the Sixers with Embiid's injury, that sort of upset their apple cart. And then a whole host of other injuries around that, too, like half their rotation's been gone. Same as the Knicks, right? Um, but that said, like, the Cavs don't have to apologize for their own success in that regard. And they f- went through their own ma- like massive spate of injuries, losing half of their starting lineup uh, for an extended period of time. And Cleveland, I think, is to be commended for the way that you know, the sort of uh, circled the wagons and rallied around during that period, and the, and the identity that has sort of grown out of that. Um, you know, Donovan Mitchell playing maybe the best basketball he's ever played uh, when you factor in the defensive end of the floor and how he's performed on both ends. And the fact that there's like the things that the, that the Cavs struggled so much with last season, last postseason especially in that first round series against the Knicks, with the, the perimeter shooting, with the complementary pieces around Mitchell and Garland, with the way that uh, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley were performing, and with the the rebounding, obviously the defensive rebounding in particular, keeping the Knicks off the glass, all that stuff the Cavs are better at now. Like they've just become, they have strengthened their weaknesses and also sharpened some of their strengths, like augmented the way that Mitchell is able to get downhill off the bounce, the way that Allen is, is rolling to the rim, the way that they've, uh, J.B. Bickerstaff has increased the staggering between the Mitchell-Allen uh, group and then Garland and Mobley and you know, activating more guys off the bench. There's just more live options. So, I mean, the Cavs, it, it, I mean, everybody's going to say, like, it remains to be seen. Like, I'll need to see it to believe it in the playoffs. But everything the Cavs have done to this point is answer the questions that, or you know, everyone had about them. And, like, that's kind of all you can do. Do you see this year as the start of their window with Donovan Mitchell or the potential closing of it? <laughs> Every national guy with a, a data plan says the latter, right? <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I don't know. Like, all you can do is take people at their word until their actions tell you something different. And... I like there's Donovan Mitchell is playing like a guy who has no interest in going someplace else. He's performing like someone who feels like he's got a real shot at something here, not somebody who's trying to kind of like uh, find, you know, look for the exit door and give 50% effort on the way out there. You know, we we've seen superstars do that, and Donovan Mitchell is is going the other way. He seems to be going 100 miles per hour toward what this Cavs team can be. So. To me, I look at it and say, and I think the performance over the last, like since mid-December particularly, if I'm the Cavs, I look at that and say, this is a guy that we have to build around. This is a guy that we really want to orient this whole thing around. Like, if you needed to make a move 
well, you know, to break up the core in some way. And I'm not saying they do. I'm not saying that Kobe Altman and that front office is looking at it and saying, well, we've got this, you know, financial crunch coming or these contracts are going to come up, uh, come up at the same time and that's going to be an issue for us. But I think the, the play of Donovan Mitchell since mid-December, where he's really kind of vaulted himself up into that lo- the lower reaches of the MVP conversation, that leads me to think, like, instead of thinking we've got to move him for value while we can, I'd be more comfortable going the other way and saying, this is the guy we need to, like, put, or, you know, go all in on, you know, and, and see if, he, if he's comfortable and he's willing uh, to, to kind of marry long term. Obviously, there's, there's a reason, you know, there are many financial reasons why it doesn't make sense for him to do that right now when he can uh, extend for a much bigger number in an extra year uh, after, the, after the season. But, like, he is performing. Like uh, like the standard bearer you want from your number one guy, um, and so I mean you'd like to believe that if a guy is doing that, he's also not looking for uh, his next chapter at the same time. Dan, you mentioned uh, the media's kink of uh, making sure that to let everybody know that Donovan Mitchell is a short timer in Cleveland. I- I'm curious how much of that has to do with Cleveland. Like if he had gotten traded to Chicago or Houston, or Dallas, do you think that that same dead-set mentality would be in place about Donovan Mitchell's future? I think it's less about him getting traded to Cleveland and more about him being born close to New York. I think, like, if he, if he was born in Baltimore, I don't know that we'd be having the same conversation about going to the Wizards, you know? I think it, it, it's more about, like... There was the, the sort of direct line connecting where he grew up and the teams that he, or the, the area he grew up in, uh, you know, his dad working for the Mets, and everyone's heard the stories, you know. So I think that's what it is. And then anytime it, you know, the New York market becomes kind of attached to a story like that, uh, it, it grows legs and it gets sunk in a little bit more. So uh, I think, I mean, the Cavs become. Uh, become it's sort of easy to look past from a national perspective when LeBron James is not playing for them, but the Cavs have done they don't have, have done their best to wrench the spotlight in their direction with the way they've built over these last few years by nailing the trade to bring in Jared Allen, by going and getting Karis LeVert, by the, the 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 moves to draft Darius Garland and stick with him through that really rough rookie season to get Evan Mobley and like to build that core to to where. You're right within, you know, sort of striking distance of being, you know, pretty competitive, pretty solid. They're in a really good team before injury struck them a couple seasons ago, to where you can make a big swing move like the one for Donovan Mitchell. So, I mean, whether the the uh, the eyes of the sort of newsbreaker class are always going to kind of glaze over when the Cavs, uh, you know, become a topic of conversation. You know that's that you know that may be and that might not, might never change, but the Cavs as a basketball like a serious basketball enterprise have done pretty much everything they can do to uh, you know mitigate any issues uh, that might arise from the market size. Well, now I'm down this rabbit hole. If Donovan Mitchell was averaging the same points per game that he's averaging and was the two seed in New York, would he be uh, a a a stronger contender for MVP right now? I mean, you'd probably hear hear louder talk about it for sure. Um, I don't know if anybody is going to be able to crack into that top, you know, two or three where you've got Nikola Jokic, you've got Shea Gildas Alexander, and you've got Giannis Antetokounmpo. Maybe Luka Doncic is in that in that situation too. So I think kind of most guys are playing for third, fourth, you know, down market there a little bit when when he was healthy. Obviously, he was up at the top of that list, but. 
you know, Brunson, Jalen Brunson had a moment where he was generating that kind of attention when the Knicks were white hot. Uh, Donovan Mitchell got a, you know, some of that discussion with the Cavs being red hot right heading into the break. And if it continues and persists and the Cavs continue to, you know, make their way up, I mean, they're, they're probably not going up and catching Boston because they're, you know, ran away to and, and hid to six, uh, a six-game cushion. But he keeps performing like this and the Cavs keep it up. I mean, the drumbeat will get louder, but you're absolutely right to note, like, it gets loud. It gets even louder still in certain areas. Like the joke on the or the the, the object example of this is, OG Anunoby goes from being a Toronto Raptor to being a New York Nick, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait, is he in the Defensive Player of the Year conversation? And a lot of that just comes down to yeah, you know what the name on this on the front of the jersey says. Dan Devine on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline, Yahoo Sports senior NBA writer here. Uh, so much talk about Evan Mobley's third year. You know, at the beginning of the season, before the injury, it was he's been a disappointment because his numbers haven't taken a big jump offensively and the, the the shooting numbers, three-point shooting. Now, small sample size, but coming off the injury, he's really shooting the ball really well. He's shooting 41% on, I think, uh, attempt or an attempt and a half a game. I'm just curious, when we start to, like, forecast down the road, Evan keeps shooting these threes, or Evan doesn't, or Evan kind of continues to develop that shot on into the playoffs. What do you see as the difference between the Cavs ceiling this year if Evan keeps shooting these shots and grows that over the final you know 30 regular season games into the playoffs and him not doing that? What, what's the difference for the Cavs ceiling? The, I mean, the biggest difference is that if he is able to become a – I mean, the accuracy obviously is, is great – but the willingness might even be more important. If he's able to become somebody who takes those shots at some volume and is a legitimate threat from the perimeter, whether that's from the corners or picking and popping, it makes the, the pairing of Mobley and Jared Allen so much more tenable because, like, think back to that Knicks series where the Knicks were just able to completely clog the paint because they knew that every time that Donovan, uh, Donovan Mitchell came off the screen, no matter who the screener was, the other big guy was, not, was either you know, rolling or hanging out in the dunker spot or in the short corner, not really spacing the floor. And so the Knicks defenders could just leave him alone out there. And they could you know, clog the paint and not worry at all about the ball going out to that guy and that guy making a shot. So... The, the, the incremental changes and the adjustments, like even Jared Allen taking some more mid-range jumpers this season or having a little bit more sauce when he gets the ball in the middle of the floor and can actually make a dribble move and go to the basket, like that stuff all helps. But Mobley being somebody who could actually space the floor out to the three-point line, draw a closeout and a hard contest, like that would open up the, the, just the geometry of the floor. Anything that can make it a little bit more difficult for you to pack the paint, for you to sag off shooters against the Cavs, then creates wider open driving lanes for Darius Garland, for Donovan Mitchell, makes it easier for those guys to get into the paint you know, comp- uh, compromise the defense, force uh, a rotation, and then all of a sudden you're kicking out to open shooters. And now, with the construction of this Cavs team, those open shooters are guys like Max Struess or George Niang or Sam Merrill or a new, you know, increasingly confident and competent Isaac Okoro. Like, there's a, just a higher class of option catching and shooting those shots. And if Mobley becomes one of those kinds of guys, and all of a sudden you've got everything he can do rolling to the rim, you've got everything he can do where he's able to post up against smaller guys on a mismatch or a switch. Obviously he's not like a brute down there, but he can shoot over the top of those guys and he's got good touch. 
You got what he could do as a playmaker connecting in the middle of the floor, and you got to worry about him shooting the ball or if you close out, beating that, putting it on the deck and getting to the basket. He becomes so much more of a difficult player to guard individually, and the Cavs become so much more difficult of a team to guard collectively to say nothing of the fact that like it's easier to keep just two bigs on the floor, which is obviously the whole defensive identity that J.B. Bickerstaff has wanted to build. So long-term, that is a like a gigantic swing skill for Mobley uh, individually and the Cavs as a whole. And then over the course of the next couple of months here, it just would make the Cavs an even more formidable opponent in a playoff series. Dan, we are uh, exactly two weeks removed from the NBA trade deadline. The Cavs didn't make a move, and I think everybody in Cleveland was okay with that given the state of their roster. But the Warriors have now leaked out that they tried to trade for LeBron. Uh, they targeted and had talks about Deontay Murray and Pascal Siakam. I'm pretty sure every player that was moved or could have been moved or had talks about at the moves, the Warriors have now leaked that they had at least talked about. I'm, why are the Warriors so damn concerned about everybody knowing the players they could have or at least thought about trading for the deadline? Well, here's the you know the, the official caveat, the you know public statement of you know we don't know for sure who leaked <laughs> what to whom and where things came from. You know we don't know that for sure. Um, what I would say is, when you employ Stephen Curry, you need to be all in all the time, right? He is the kind of player that merits that kind of approach. Uh, same as you know when you know you guys remember it well, LeBron James. When you have a guy at that level in terms of both the present tense quality and the way he that he can uh, lift a team on his back and also just all-time stature, if you are not all in all the time, then you are going to be out of that business. Now, um, you need to show and prove that you are willing to compete at all times. And that's, uh, you know, I was before we got on, I was reading uh, Baxter Holmes' piece in ESPN this morning about where Joe Lacob is on the record saying, you know, we're not going to be just some other team. Like, we're not just going to, like, lay idly by. We're going to keep going for it. That has sort of been the brand of the Lacob ownership uh, era in, in Golden State. And it's, you know, worked out pretty well, generally speaking. But they've obviously also had a big detour into that, you know, quote-unquote two timelines era where they tried to find the bridge to the future and they thought it would be James Wiseman and Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga. And it looks like they have, at least they feel like they went one for three. Moses Moody doesn't seem to get a whole lot of run and uh, maybe he should get more of it. But, you know, they, they, oh, they have a, an aging trio of legends, one of whom is still, you know, one of the ten best players in the league, and then the other two guys are, are not. And you know, Clay Thompson has, has missed, he missed two full seasons due to devastating injuries. For him to be back playing like at, at even the level at now is remarkable in context. And then Draymond Green, who remains one of the best defenders in the world when he's getting on the court and he's able to stay there uh, through his, you know, through his own fault. Um, so I mean, they they need to be showing like we're we, we're not content being the ten seed, just trying to skate into the play-in tournament. We believe we should be, uh, you know, promote, uh, pushing ourselves up the standings. We need to be trying and going to improve, and whatever costs will do. The other side of that, though, is like I think I think their their total roster in terms of salary and taxes this year. I think they're paying like four hundred million dollars for what is now like a five hundred team, and that's just that's not going to be good enough. If that's a, as high as they can get in terms of they didn't make make major moves at the deadline, I think all they did was get off of Corey Joseph and so they cut their tax bill somewhat. 
you know, so they, they've got to be good enough with what they've got right now. And there are some positive signs for them. Kaminga's been good in the starting lineup. Brandon Pajemski, they've, you know, Steve Kerr made the difficult decision to start bringing Clay Thompson off the bench for the first time since, I think, his rookie year. So, they, you know, they're trending in a positive direction. But, yeah, the, 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 it starts to get loud when you're not as good as you need to be and you have an all-timer who deserves uh, something better than that. Dan, uh, Doc Rivers has coached the Bucks for 10 games. He's won three, uh, 30% of those games, and then he spent the entire All-Star break uh, basically becoming basketball Jesus. That he's, He doesn't know why the Bucks <laughs> fired Adrian Griffin despite him being around that conversation. He, wa- he wanted to take a year off. Oh, and apparently he knew Shea Gilgis-Alexander was going to score 30 points a game. I'm just curious. I, I mean this in all sincerity. Does Doc Rivers actually want to coach the Milwaukee Bucks, or was he just looking for a $40 million golden parachute? I mean, he, it's, the thing that, that struck me most in all those things was him saying, like, I don't know why you guys are coming to talk to me about this. Like, like he seemed flummoxed that the Bucks <laughs> were reaching out to him. You know, I mean, if somebody walked up to you and said, here's $40 million for, you know, at what, what would be at a minimum, like, you know, a few, a couple of months of work, like, to argue with it, you know, it seems like one of the only things that would be a sweeter deal than, you know, the, the lucrative deal that he had at ESP, uh, ESPN to be part of that coverage. But, I mean, yeah, it's not like you, you, get, you get an opportunity to coach all-time talent, which, you know, that's been Doc's, you know, very understandable as a smart MO. If you're going to coach a team, you want it to be coaching a team with Hall of Fame talent. And you walk into a team that was already pretty damn good. Uh, with the expectation that you can get him above there, and then immediately kind of undercut those expectations and say, this is going to be the hardest thing I've ever had to do, taking over a team midseason, and then getting it sort of pointed in the right direction, and then follow that up by saying, like, uh, you know, yeah, we, we had some guys on the way to Cabo for the last game before the, 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 the All-Star break, and, you know, I don't, yeah, then as you mentioned, all the things that he was saying during the All-Star break, it doesn't seem like he's super thrilled about doing this. Um, I imagine he gets a lot happier on the 1st and 15th, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's an odd set of circumstances. You've got all that going on. You've got Giannis giving a uh, really interesting interview to The Athletic where he's saying it's like it's Dame's team, and he's riding with Dame to the end. And he's got to do more, but all like again, like it's Dame's team. I think they're a pretty, they're to me the biggest like question mark X factor in the East. We know, as we mentioned, we know that the the Celtics kind of ran away with or running away with the number one seed. The Cavs have put themselves in really strong position for number two. That whole mix there, where it's the Bucks, the Knicks with all their injuries, the Sixers with Embiid's injury, uh, you know, the Pacers down below them, but you know, they've just got Siakam and Tyrese Halliburton healthy again. Like that whole collection of teams, Miami, which they can ever get all their guys on the court at the same time, somebody's going to sort of rise out of that group and, and mount a real serious challenge. It feels like the Bucks should be that team because none of those teams have Giannis, especially with Embiid being out. But, man, they, they seem like they're, they're still trying to get all their ducks in a row in a way that makes me wonder if all those guys are just going to start swimming in their own separate directions. Well, if any other coaches want, to, want somebody to poorly coach for three months and give them $40 million, you tell them to come find me. Dan, great stuff, buddy. Love the energy. Love the, the mindset here. Really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dan Devine there, Yahoo Sports, senior NBA writer on the North Homestead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. I think I've just decided, because I think there are two camps. One, there is, you're worried it's not real, so you're not going to have expectations, right? Two, 
you think it's real, but you don't know for sure, and expectations to turn to try to tend to ruin the fun. I kind of look at it a different angle, which is I say I think this team is in a much better spot than last year, and I think I I still have my concerns, but I should. Until this team wins a playoff series, it's okay to say. I think they can do dot, 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 but we've got to see them at least execute the basics, which is showing up to a playoff series and delivering the goods. And I don't think it's, you know, I, I made the, the point earlier about, man, it'd be nice to get that two seed because you get a, a week seven seed and it just gives you a little bit more time to get comfortable in the playoffs. At some point, the Cavs have to show you that they can play in a playoff series with playoff intentions. And teams like, the Boston Celtics go into every one of those series with the intention of winning an NBA title. You have to learn that. I tend to think, well, get an easier first round matchup, then maybe a moderate second round matchup, and then you really have to kind of be ready by the time you face the Celtics. Because I think you, whoever comes out of the one, I, I think the Celtics are going to be in the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think it is all right. Which one of the other six teams? I know that there are going to be eight playoff teams, but which one of the six teams that actually could win a playoff series, who's actually going to do it? Who's going to do the thing and and face Boston? Could it be that that, that that team's a sacrificial lamb? Yep, it could be. But it doesn't have to be. And the Cavs, just as much as anyone, maybe not the Bucs, because the Bucs with Lillard and, and Giannis, they should be able to figure this out. It's honestly kind of a disgrace how the Bucks portrayed themselves, including their head coach, over the the All-Star uh, break. It was embarrassing. If I was the Bucks ownership or Bucks leadership, I would be furious with how Giannis talked about being at the, the deadline, uh, how Doc Rivers comported himself. Um, and again, that left me the only logical conclusion that Doc Rivers saw a $40 million paycheck and said, Let's go ahead and tank this thing and let's get let's get fired. Hey, it's not going to kill my uh, my bona fides as an NBA coach. I need that $40 million retirement golden parachute. I, I hope that's not the case. Like, that's the worst thing you could do. But, I mean, that was, that was embarrassing. Doc going out there and saying things like, I don't know why they fired Adrian Griffin when Doc was the coaching consultant that was supposed to help Adrian Griffin become a better head coach. And a lot of people feel like all Doc did was sabotage Adrian Griffin. And then to go, I don't know why they fired him, which makes you look uh, a phony. And then to say, I don't know why they called me, um, which makes you look like a phony when you were consulting the thing in the first place and then goes, "Ah, I didn't really want to coach this year anyways. Like, I just got to say like that my biggest doubt about Milwaukee now is whether they have everything they need to just get out of their own way. In the end, Giannis is Giannis. In the end, Dame Lillard is Dame Lillard. Like the defensive stuff's real, right? Um, Unlocking Dame and Giannis at the same time offensively, real. But all that, all that stuff kind of tends to work itself out. You can you can go ahead and build that roster better around both guys. Man, if your coach is actively hurting you, because I think we do this thing where the coach doesn't matter. I think the coach matters in the NBA. When your team, when you have a elite coach and when you have an awful coach. 
I think the Bucks. I, I think it's really tough to, to overcome an awful coach. Say everything I have about J.B. Bickerstaff, whether he's a fit or not going forward, he's not an awful coach. I don't think he's an elite coach. That's got to be proven. But, man, I got to tell you, that that Bucks situation is I, – I, I all of a sudden don't think they can fix it. And we could get five games into the second half, and I could be wrong. So we haven't talked a lot of Browns today. We're going to get more into the Browns and some football talk here in the second half of the show. We do have the 5 at 5 coming up. Uh, Albert Brewer usually joins us at 520. Uh, he is vacationing this week during the offseason. When when Albert uh, asks for time away, we always give him that time because he's so generous through like 99% of the football season. And so with that being said, so no Albert today. So more Browns talk on the way. It was interesting. I was listening to Andy Baskin and Jonathan Peterlin filling in for the morning boys today, and they had Mary Kay Cabot on, and they asked Mary Kay about which free agents the Browns should prioritize of their own free agents this offseason. I thought Mary Kay had a really good point here. They have a lot of guys that are on that list that it would be nice if they can bring them back, such as Zadarius, and I'm sure they'll try to bring Zadarius back. But, you know, there are not a bunch of guys on there where you look at it and say, oh, my goodness, I don't know how they're going to try to contend for the AFC North if they don't bring this guy back. And some teams have that situation going on. The Browns really don't have that going on. Uh, they've got a lot of guys on there that they would like to have back, that they'll try to get back, but they don't have any, like, deal breakers on that list. If they had to replace some of these guys, they would be able to do that. And I think that's, that's so true when you look around the AFC North. Like Cincinnati has DJ Reader, who I think is their most important defensive lineman. Tyler Boyd, uh, their starting cornerback, who I'm not going to butcher his name on air and embarrass myself again. Uh, Jonah Williams, their right tackle. T. Higgins. They have five or six guys that Man, if they don't replace them, they're probably going to downgrade at those positions. Looking over at Baltimore, Justin Matabuike has been a name that we've talked a lot about, but they've got Kevin Zeitler, uh, former Browns guard. He's older, but he's been a really productive part of their their team. Patrick Queen, Rock Yassin, um, Geno Stone, uh, uh, um, Jadavian Clowney. So Baltimore has six, seven, maybe eight guys that are a part of their core success this last year, even if they're older, that they've got to really kind of worry about. I Kind of even going over to, to Pittsburgh with moving on and, and some kind of guys like, uh, you know, Quan Alexander, James Pierre, um, some of their linebacking core. You start to look there. I think they're probably closer to the situation the Browns are in, but everybody else – in this division has guys that if they don't re-sign them, they're going to struggle to replace them with the same level of player in free agency. I think the beauty of where the Browns are is much like Mary Kay was saying, there's not one guy that I think you need to have back. Every one of these guys, if you can get them back at the right price, every one of these guys I think are guys I'm interested in having back. But I don't think you need any of these guys. So 216-474-0092. Who are the guys you'd like to see the Browns prioritize in free agency? Because I think there's a difference in saying you don't need any of these guys back. And, all right, here are the guys you want back. I would be – I, I almost said I'd be surprised if Jordan Elliott isn't back. Um, I'm intrigued to see how they handle that one. Because Jordan had more moments this year than he had in the previous few years. I still don't know he's anything more than a rotational defensive lineman. 
but because they drafted him with a third-round pick. Jordan Elliott would be a guy that I, I could see them prioritizing. I'm not that sold, but he's a young defensive tackle. You never know when those guys could take the jump forward. Um, I, a guy that I really care about, Mo Hurst the, the second. I think Mo had a huge bounce-back year. I kind of am intrigued to see if, now that he's found his way in this system, whether he can take a jump forward in year two in the Jim Schwartz defense. That's that's a guy I'd like to see them prioritize. The, there's two names that I I don't know, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I think they both could be back, but I don't know how married I am to them, and I think they're the names that Browns fans might care most about. One is Zadarius Smith. And I think Zadarius was part of the the locker room culture that helped you out so much. I think Zadarius, the trade ended up being worth it because it was a pick swap. You paid him $15 million. And by the end of the season, I think he got like five, I think it was like four and a half, five sacks. And while, all while kind of swapping in and out, it is the first time he played with his hand in the dirt for, I think, since he was a rookie. So like he wasn't, he didn't give you 10 sack production like he did in Minnesota a year ago. But he actually got better as the season went on, which was the opposite of what happened in Minnesota last year. So, like, my thing with Zadarius is I didn't see what Zadarius did this year that Obo Okoronkwo can't do. And so when it comes to, all right, what do you do across from Miles Garrett? I don't see the point in keeping a younger, equally productive player on the bench unless you can go out and find somebody that I think is like a legitimate starter across from miles. So like I, I, if they brought a Zedarius back on a modest deal, I, Oh yeah. Zedarius was a great guy. And we, I think we all kind of succumbed to his charm in camp and throughout the season, but I don't know. He produced so much that I think you need to. And I think that's, what's interesting is part of the hope when you traded for him is, well, hopefully he comes in plays really well. And then you, Maybe you have to think about extending him. I kind of think he's the kind of guy, to me, he's like Flacco. Like, if he's there three weeks in, well, Flacco's different because of the the fit uh, in the offensive system, but, like, if he's there three weeks into free agency and he hasn't gotten a real deal, eh, maybe we circle back and see if he can make something happen. I think the guy who I actually think is the Browns' most important free agent, and it's not necessarily just him, it's about the position, um, at, more so than Zadarius Smith, more so than any of the safeties, any of the defensive linemen, Mo Hurst, Jordan Elliott, any of them. I think the most important free agent decision is Anthony Walker Jr. Because it's actually like, I, I think Anthony has been a great leader, but on the field, an average level player. Meaning like league average, good linebacker. Not great, not terrible. There have been some matchups where he has really struggled. There have been some matchups where I think he's been better. I think he's been a nice player. And I don't mean that in like a, a snarky way. But I think you've got to the point where you either bring this guy back for one more year and then next year you finally replace him or this is the year where you finally upgrade and have a second linebacker like JOK that can be more of a sideline-to-sideline -side linebacker. Like, I, I, I don't think the Browns are going to spend big on a linebacker. I think that's just philosophically, I don't think it's something they're all that in, into. But maybe if you could get another veteran like Anthony, you got Anthony on a really good deal. I think it was three years ago. He kind of solidified your linebacking spot. It might be like you can get a Levante David for a year or two at the end of his career. 
relative a modest deal, but he can still go. He can still be a nice player. I think I, I it's less about you have to bring back Anthony. It's more if you don't bring back Anthony, you better find an upgrade over him. Two one six four seven four double o nine two. So those are just some of the names that they really don't have one guy, but some of the names: Kareem Hunt, Jordan Elliott, Maurice Hur- uh, Maurice Hurst, Anthony Walker Jr., Sione Takitaki, uh, Zadaria Smith, Rodney McLeod Jr. I'm not going to say Marquise Goodwin. Uh, Corey Bajorquez. What free agents do you want to see the Browns prioritize? We got to get into the uh, spring training report. Is brought to you by Golf Tech and Bet Three Six Five and I know that you know some of these reports can be about ah the Guardians they got the first uh, spring training game coming up on Saturday against the Reds they got all this uh, I'm most interested in the state of the Guardians and Tom Verducci joined the show yesterday MLB on Fox MLB Network and he was kind of talking about expectations with the Guardians but he got into uh, one of the the key things here which is Shane Bieber's future. I think they hold on to Bieber. I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, trying to trade Bieber and, and improve the offense, but I think this team will at least be a contender for three months of the season. That's always the key for me. If you're so far away that it's kind of hopeless to think that Bieber's going to help you in a second half of meaningful games, then you, you strike earlier. But I don't see that they're not in the mix three months through a 162-game season. So, you know, if you're going to tell me that Bieber and Tristan McKenzie make, you know, I don't know, anywhere between 50 and 60 starts, that's a really good foundation for this team. Would it phase you if the Guardians traded Shane Bieber tomorrow? I'm not being facetious about this. This is not a rhetorical question. 216-474-0092 or at Nick Wilson says. Would it phase you if the, the Guardians traded Shane Bieber? Because I don't think it would phase Guardians fans because I think Guardians fans don't necessarily feel the connection going into the season that they did last year. One, Tito's not here. I think Tito... Um, because of the history with Tito, I think that was an easy access point to the organization. I think Steven Vogt has the personality to get there, but again, he's new. You just don't know him the same way. So the trust level's different. I also think you're coming off a disappointing season. And last season started disappointing. It Then you kind of got to the deadline, and then the team traded Aaron Savali and Josh Bell, and it just was... It was it was it was honestly ill timed, and so I I actually think, and by the way, the team really fell apart after that. I think it'd be smarter from a PR perspective to either trade Shane Bieber before the season opens, or just hold on him hold on to him until he hits free agency, because I think if you are in contention, and that's really kind of the crux of what Verducci said. I think for at least three months they can be in contention. I think they're. I think we should actually have higher expectations. But I, I understand. Like that's they were a disappointing team last year. New manager. You still don't know what the offense looks like. You've got a young rotation, a lot of promise. I think the rotation in the the bullpen are better. That's a lot of maybes with the Guardians right now. But I think the worst thing that could happen is you're in another race for the AL Central, and at the deadline you're you're selling Shane Bieber off for a Kyle Manzardo. And listen, guys, the Guardians made the right move. Kyle Manzardo is worth more to them than Aaron Savali would, given Aaron's health issues. That being said, Shane Bieber, I just, if you end up having to train, if you're one game out of 500, or sorry, if you're one game back off the AL Central lead and you trade Shane Bieber for a prospect, even a great pro, a top 100, top 50, top 20 prospect 
in baseball, it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. And I just don't think you can do that while also not turning around and making a move to make your roster better. So that's one scenario how this season plays back. But other than that, other than the idea of, man, if you're in contention, even if it's for the Central, even though we all know the Central's weak, reality is, man, it's just tough to trade a, a veteran player, a guy who has the history with uh, Guardians fans that you have with, with Shane. Other than that specific scenario, I think the Guardians are in the best possible scenario um, with with one of their best players in Shane Bieber. Because if he, if he is healthy, and let's say this is another building year, I think you're going to be able to maximize his value like you did with Savali. And I think I think because Shane's last year was was complicated by injuries, I think you know he he his shoulder has not experienced the same workload it did at kind of the peak where Tito kind of used and abused him a little bit with the innings perspective. So I think he's got a chance to be healthy. And here's the other thing, guys: he could if he plays really really well. Yeah, I actually think Shane Bieber's one of the keys to contention this year. As much as we've harped on, and rightfully so, how bad the offense was last year, the recipe's still there for the Guardians to recoup their formula for winning from two seasons ago. I mean, people act like in that that 2022 season that you had everything. Guys, you had like four really good hitters. And then you had two or three guys that kind of got it done, and then you had two or three guys that really didn't get it done. You had Austin Hedges playing 90% of the games that year. You had other guys who honestly were not everyday players playing. I mean, and and yes, you had Quan and you had Jimenez and those guys were fantastic. But like Ahmed Rosario was like your fourth or fifth best hitter. He was uh, Josh Naylor was hurt a, a fair amount and honestly was good, but wasn't as good as he was last year. So everybody puts it on the offense. I think if Shane Bieber and Tristan McKenzie stay healthy and play up to their potential, and you can say the same thing about their next three starters, I think the Guardians have everything they need to be a menace in the playoffs. Like, I'm not even just thinking about the regular season. You keep five starters at that level healthy and productive with that bullpen, because then the bullpen's going to be even sharper, you can contend in the AL Central. But who the hell wants to face the Guardians with those five starters, including Shane Bieber? So Shane Bieber getting back and rejuvenated. Shane Bieber, there were some reports early in camp. His fastball was sitting at 96 miles an hour. I don't know if that was a, a media creation to help try and get him traded or whether that was or to help his value or maybe that was a Scott Boris thing to try and help his value. I don't know because, I, I mean, if I'm, if I'm Scott Boris, I want Shane Bieber in a big market with maybe playing for a playoff team to try and maximize his value, but I digress. Like we we I I think you got to figure out the offense, and I think it's going to take 162 games to fi- uh, figure out the offense. I actually think there's a chance we come out of this with eight of the nine positions long term, feeling pretty good about them, because I think Manzardo is going to have a chance. I think Bo Naylor is going to really give you some confidence. I think shortstop actually will resolve itself, and I think it's going to be Gabe Arias because I I still believe in that guy. He he actually does swing a really good bat. I don't think he gets credit. He's actually a really nice player. His just has the weirdest reverse splits in history. The offense, you got Quan. We'll see. Maybe maybe Loriano can stick around for a little bit. Maybe all of a sudden George somebody from the but the getting back to it. 
The offense is going to take 162 games. I think the rotation might be good enough right off the rip to give you a real chance. Because here's the thing. The Tigers did diddly squat this offseason. My buddy Jim Costa was complaining about it yesterday on his morning show in Detroit. Uh, Minnesota, weirdest offseason. They kind of got better, but they also kind of got worse. Chicago did literally nothing, and they're, they're probably going to trade Dylan Cease. The, he'll be the other guy available at the deadline. Kansas City got better, but they were like a 55-win team, 60-win team last year. Kansas City should not compete under any scenario. So it's between the Guardians, the Tigers, and the Twins. And I think everything that anybody else can say, I think the Guardians have the best pitching staff. They have the best uh, rotation and the best bullpen. Now, I'm not trying, but but it all comes back to, can Shane Bieber be the ace that he was three or four years ago? So if the answer is yes, it gives you a, a gigantic margin for error, and it, it's going to give the offense time to come along and, and over 162 games develop into what they hopefully can be. This string training report is brought to you by Casey Roofing and Quinn Legal. I would like to thank, real quick here, the NCAA, who is out here saving lives. And, you know, I, I, I've said a lot of things about the NCAA and uh, and how, you know, how at points they've been a tyrannical, oppressive regime. And they have, you know, historically they have tried to hoard power, suppress kids' rights and su- suppress kids' ability to move schools. Um, now they're really trying to suppress uh, schools' powers and and try to like basically find anywhere that they can get any modicum of power to stay relevant. And uh, I you know I've been hard on them because they're an awful tyrannical organization when it comes to the major powers uh, like uh, college football and uh, college basketball. But uh, they finally got one right. They did. And uh, Andrew Irvin, uh, Andrew Ivins who is a, a director of scouting for 24-7 Sports, had an update today that apparently the NCAA, on recruiting visits, you're no longer allowed to do photo shoots on this, which I think is really – because th- those photo shoots were really harming these kids. And they were really they were really an unfair advantage for literally no one. But the NCAA has also sent out an email saying that schools can no longer decorate a prospect's hotel room on official visits – so all cookie cakes and snacks must be handed to recruits in in the lobby. And I just just gotta say, I mean, you know, some of those kids they, they might they might see a brookie, you know, a, a brownie cookie, and they might just I might just be the thing. They're like, okay, I can go to school A for a hundred thousand dollars a year from NIL. I can go to school B for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But the only way I can really deliberate on that decision is if I sit down here and eat this giant cookie in the, the in the shape of basically a cookie cake. So I'm just I'm so glad that the NCAA has rooted out all the evil here. The bagman, he no longer is the bagman just slinging money. He's now literally slinging dough and p- the potential for diabetes for these young athletes. I just the, Keith, we did it. We fixed college football. We get, we fixed college recruiting. Get your fat asses out of the hall and get your cookies that way. I was going to say, it makes a huge difference if you show up and they're in the room as opposed to having to hand them to them in person. I just like that. Here's the thing. That's what we need. We need more person-to-person yes. contact anyway. They're looking out for that. Yeah. We don't want you sitting on your cell phone in the hotel room. I Here, just, come get a cookie. I just remember stories where like, there's a liaison in the AD's office 
who their job is to provide young nubile uh, co-eds as companionship. It's basically like Gata from the other guys. Like it's a pimp service that we don't call it a pimping service of young co-eds to, to, to young athletes to, to coerce them to come to their schools. And they're like, okay, that's okay. That off the record stuff is fine, but I swear to God, you put a cookie in their room and you are going to get the death penalty. I just, I just, I got to say, man, the NCAA is finally on it. They're finally on it. And those photo shoots too. Oh, man. That, that photo, the, 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 the cameras that went all the way around them and they got to like, the coaches got to pose and the players got to look cool. Whew. We don't need you putting on a jersey and that, seeing how you look. Those things were really the threat to, to academia that I've been worried about. It's Think like, about the children. You know, the, but you know it's going to happen, right? Little Debbie, they're going to get sly. They're going to start crushing up. They're going to start crushing up those zebra cakes, and they're just going to start sliding them under the door like, hey, nope. And then you're going to look out. It's like a fixer. You're going to look out in the hall like, who put this crushed up zebra Forget cake? about the handshakes and money. How about the handshakes of the cookies <laughs> outside of the – hey, don't talk. I'll, I'll be 100% honest with you. I was not a highly recruited athlete. I think we can all understand that. Uh, you would have quickly lured me to the dark side to go somewhere for zebra cakes on the low low before money. I mean, money's like cool the, and all, but zebra cakes really get you where you need to go. What do you, what do you like, the co- cosmic brownies? Hey, uh, hey, I got uh, I got nutter butters here. Uh, I'm not, but you take them, you got to go to Florida. All right, you take these nutter butters. This is a blood oath. All right. We don't, we don't just give Nutter Butters to anyone, okay? We don't just give it to some three-star from Poughkeepsie. No, they no, no. save the Christmas trees. Yeah. They don't, they don't carry them in stores right now. I save hey, them. Hey, listen. Um, you know those, uh, those Reese's, those eggs for Easter? I know it's September. We got them. All you got to do is just sign your life away right here. And the NCAA is there to stop it. It's just beautiful. It makes Hot me damn. S- there ain't no beating this. I mean, think about it. I just the 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 impact on the sweets and cookies. It's just it's gonna be over. It's gonna be over. The brookie's gonna die. We're never gonna see those in in uh, at get go anymore. We're not gonna we're not gonna see any of this. It's all gone just because the NCAA finally did what what needed to be done, and they're cracking down on uh, on on big sweet and uh, and and big college football, big college basketball. Trying to give the kids the beat us. Let's delay figuring out the postseason for the next few years and get rid of the sugar. Listen. Get it out. They're not letting you in that decision room. All right? They're not letting you decide how many playoff teams there are. You have no control over what teams and what any conference anymore. But what you can control is whether a cookie is in an athlete's room or whether you have to hand it. Do they think – is this like is this like the, the Halloween thing? We're like every year we get Fox Eight runs the same story about you gotta check your drugs, uh, you gotta check your your kids. Uh, <laughs> I almost was going from the other end. You gotta you gotta I, guys. I keep checking my drugs for cookies. There's none in there. No, where they they're like, hey, always make sure check your children's uh, you know candy baskets because they could have razors in them. Or are like I remember being 16 and really hoping. Somebody snuck some MDMA into my my peanut butter cups. Never happened. Which again shows like drug dealers do not give away their product for free. Just so you know, not least of all the kids and candy. Two, I kind of feel like we now need to do this. Like it is it, in that greasy palm. There's a thousand dollars in wadded up ones. 
there's a snack cake, and then there's like just like a like a like a, like a little one hitter. Like I just feel like it's now we've got okay, we've got to the point. Thank you, NCAA, for protecting the children, for protecting academia. You're still completely and totally irrelevant. So uh, fun stuff there. I just love the phrase, all cookie cakes and snacks must be handed to recruits in lobby. Hey, uh, I didn't get one of those down there. Sorry. You had to, uh, I mean, we still have them, but you're not in the lobby anymore. So um, uh, I guess you're just going to have to starve. Hot damn. Like, oh my God, look at that. So while I was listening to the morning show today, I, I heard them play the pro football focus thing. And that's funny, man. Different media outlets get a bad rap, right? Like uh, radio stations, sports talk stations. If, if we take something out of context, we get hammered for it. Or if we disagree with something that an organization, we get hammered for it on social media. And yet there are just random dudes on social media that are taking, that are, that are clearly taking something out of context to make somebody look bad. And, and because it fulfills a narrative that national media hates your fan or you hate your team, we run with it. The Steve Palazzolo thing where somebody, some dude on social media took like a 15 second or 20 second excerpt of what uh, Steve Palazzolo had to say about the Browns cap situation. And they cut it in such a way that it looked like he was actually talking about the Browns potentially cutting David and Joku. Have you actually listened to the full clip and, and kudos to Keith for pointing this out. If you listen to the full, that's not what happened. They were talking about the Browns. They're talking about every team in the NFL and their their cap situations. And so, so poor Steve Palazzolo has spent the last 48 hours digging out of an avalanche of angry Cleveland fans who are accusing him of saying that he should cut or that he is saying the Browns should cut David Njoku. But the morning show today, JP and AB, they actually played the sound, and then they, they got into a really interesting conversation about David Njoku and his success this year that I think is, I'm not concerned, but I am intrigued. And here's what they had to say about David Njoku and his success. Did he turn a corner or was it all Joe Flacco? That's the question I would ask around around David Njoku. Because oh, if I you look at the early corner, parts I don't think of the it mattered. Who, I'm just yeah. saying, I'm talking about the, the high production that he had because he had that. It's your second the, leading receiver. The, right. the, the 77-yard game that he had against Seattle, that was P.J. Walker that he had that with, right? Yes. Outside of that game, if you take Joe Flacco out of the equation, he didn't have a 60-plus yard receiving game the entire year. So like, he didn't have that with, with Deshaun Watson. That would be the only hiccup I would have here. I love Njoku. Maybe Flacco is the reason why Njoku was able to turn a corner, and maybe now he'll just never look back because he built up a lot of confidence within that. I'm not sure, but I, I do wonder. I think the point is valid that a lot of the most consistent production of David Njoku, Elijah Moore, and Amari Cooper happened once Joe Flacco took over. I will also say their production with Deshaun Watson was not bad. But the the worst production for all three of those guys came in the middle of the season when your quarterbacks were P.J. Walker and DTR. So I think some of the painting of like, well, they were just better with Joe Flacco. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think the dips for your wide receivers and tight end production came because of the quarterback play in the middle of the season. That I don't, I don't subscribe to, well, they were better with Deshaun or they're better with Joe Flacco. But I do think... I, I I think when it comes to David Njoku, 
I think it's fair to say that was his best season by a wide margin. And I think it's fair to ask, given when it came, which is he was most consistent with Joe Flacco down the stretch, whether you think he can duplicate his 882-yard performance with six touchdowns. Because I think it's a miracle that Amari Cooper got to 1,200 yards with four, five different quarterbacks. I think it's a miracle David Njoku got to 81 receptions and almost 900 yards and six tutties in 16 games with, uh, at that point, four different quarterbacks because in play against Cincinnati. I, I think I'll go back. I think it's a miracle that the production that they were at. But I think people look at it too easily and go, well, that was because of Joe Flacco. In part, yes. I think we're missing a little part of this. But 216-474-0092. Because Joe Flacco is not likely to be the Browns' starting quarterback next year. Are you worried or are you concerned or are you intrigued whether David Njoku can duplicate his success from this year? Because I think what people have missed on why Joe Flacco played as well as he did and was able to step in, I think what they've missed the most is that this was the perfect scenario, the perfect situation for Joe Flacco. It was a team that needed leadership-wise a, 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 a step up because they had been juggling P.J. Walker and DTR, two guys that I don't think had confidence in the locker room. I also think they benefited, he benefited from walking into the perfect system for Joe Flacco. If you were, if you were draw, whether he was 39 years old or 29 years old, if you were walking into, I got to design the perfect thing to get the best version, the best iteration of Joe Flacco, you would have him under center. You would have him in front of a strong uh, interior offensive line. You would have him with multiple weapons, and you would have him in a system that, that focuses heavily on the play action. And that's ex with a strong play caller. That's exactly what Joe Flacco had. And I think people have, have not maybe paid attention enough to that's not who Joe was. The guy that Joe was in the final six games, or sorry, his five games plus the playoff game, he wasn't the same guy as he was in New York. Why? Because he didn't have those same things. And so it's been funny to see, and I'm not saying JP or Andy Baskin are saying this, but it's been funny to see people say, well, I mean, you just need more weapons for Deshaun and you need to get better around Deshaun. I think the Joe Flacco thing proved if you've got a quarterback that fits your offense, that is healthy, that doesn't have to run for his life, I think you're going, I think you've got the weapons you need. I, I like I get it. Elijah Moore didn't have 1,200 yards this year. He was lost for the first half of the season. That's about usage. When they just let the guy play wide receiver, he was consistently getting open. When they just let Amari Cooper just be Amari Cooper, Amari Cooper's really good. So I don't. I'm not concerned about David and Joku duplicating his success because guys, I think he's really good. I think, I think the mission is if you keep Deshaun healthy and for the first time in his time in Cleveland, build an offense around Deshaun. I think I think David Njoku can have just as good a success. Like, to me, chemistry isn't just the two guys like each other and like, you know, oh, I like the way he throws that ball. Yeah, I bet you that's some of it. Do you know what I think the biggest thing is? Is everybody in lockstep and is in this, what you're asking everybody to do fit what they do? I think you've been trying to force Deshaun Watson in a, a, a square peg into a round hole here. And I think I think it is it has held back Deshaun to some level. 
whether that's scheduled throws, whether that's uh, you know the the scripting at the beginning, whether it's just more of a condensed field that you're asking him to play in with more bunch concepts and big lineups, whether it's that or just the re- I don't say refusal, but the the reticence to go to f- to a full spread offense. I think if you go to a full spread offense that is fully conformed to the skills of Deshaun Watson, I think Amari Cooper is going to have 1,200 yards again. I think David Njoku is going to have another 900-yard performance. Joe Flacco's success here in the perfect situation for Joe proved those guys, their success is predicated on who's throwing them the ball. But that doesn't mean that their success was predicated on some mythological chemistry or some perfect happenstance that can't be recreated with Deshaun Watson. Uh, We'll see if Donovan Mitchell plays tonight. It would be unfortunate if he didn't because I just built like a really good, pretty good, I built a great, not not even, I'm not going to, I'm the Prince of Parlay. I'm not going to to be humble about this. I built a, a phenomenal parlay, two of which, two legs of the parlay involved Donovan. And if you take Donovan out of it, I'll still have the other four legs valid, but the problem is, it's going to be for about 60% of the payoff. I mean, I just, Donovan, come on. We Keith actually brought up a great point. We have not seen the Donovan Mitchell let him know tweet. That's a pretty good sign. Like, well, honestly, they, you, they're on a back-to-back because they play Philly and Philly tomorrow. So, well, and chances the, are he's probably more likely to play that one. And they did give him the extra day off of practice because coming off the All-Star. But uh, it was a hell of a parlay. Really was. We'll get we'll get back to the Cavs here in the six o'clock hour. But we're just talking about David and Joku, and I'm just I am just where I am with this is I'm supremely confident that if you actually do the thing that you should have done two years ago, which is conform the offense in totality. Hey, does scheduled throws work for you? No. All right, we're gonna scrap them. Hey, how how spread do we go? Are we cool to go to tight ends or should we just go four wideouts half the time? Those are the kind of things, and honestly, some of the spread concepts in the running game. When you get those things around Deshaun, if he's healthy, which is the question, guys, I think he can bring out what David and Joku, what you saw from David in the final six games of the regular season. And and honestly, in the postseason, he was your best, he was your best offensive player in the Texans game. I think he had almost 100 yards. It was him and JOK that really showed up in the, the the postseason game in terms of skilled players. I realize now, like, I don't want Wyatt Teller listening to this, driving around his nice truck and thinking, I got to go to the Halley building and kick that guy's ass. Because uh, he could. I could be that gator on his shoulder. <laughs> if he could do that to a gator, listen, that man could carry that size gator uh, just out of the holler, out of the swamp. I would be nothing. I'd be a sack of potatoes. That being said, um, but I think it's more about, I think you just finally saw what good, really good, high productive uh, skill player positions benefit from when they have a healthy, consistent quarterback. So this idea that that is something, it's something magical to Joe Flacco in and of himself, I think we've somehow r- risen the bar for Joe Flacco and lowered the bar for damn near every other quarterback you've seen in the last 10 years. Josh, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? So, I think what's going on here, in my personal opinion, is we don't need any more weapons for Deshaun. Deshaun has the weaponry. And Joku had a breakout year this year. I think we've already discussed this about how with Flacco was our QB, 
and how he was under center. Deshaun should be preparing for Stefanski to do that with him this season. I feel that a lot rides on his shoulders. There's a lot of doubters, a lot of naysayers with Deshaun, and I just want to see him come out and have a strong performance because the weapons are there. It's all depending on him. And I think one of the things that we all need to stop doing is comparing Deshaun to previous Deshaun. We need him to come out because I'm not sure if we're ever going to see what was back in Houston. We need to see what we need to see this year and get him through a full season and be battle tough and ready to go. So there's a few things, Josh, and I appreciate your call, buddy. 216-474-0092 if you want to join Josh. Um, if Kevin Stefanski puts Deshaun Watson under center for most of this season, Deshaun Watson will not be the best version of himself. And, you know, Daryl and I have had this argument when Daryl's been on the show. I, I, I don't understand. I understand that I saw Joe Flacco play as good as a quarterback has played in this offense up until Baker Mayfield's first season of the offense in 2020. And in terms of touchdown production, it's the best quarterback performance I've seen in in brown and orange. I mean, yes, there were the interceptions, but in terms of sheer big play volume, it, I mean, going back to Vinny Testaverde, going back to Bernie with Bernie's arm, big arm, Vinny's big arm, okay? I understand that. I also think that's because the player was enabled by a scheme that fit him to a T. Kevin Stefanski, the Kubiak offense, the West Coast offense, does not fit Deshaun Watson. It doesn't. But I think we've gotten to a point where, and I'm not suggesting this is what Josh is saying, because I don't want to put words in his mouth, but this idea of, well, hey, Joe Flacco did it, so figure it the hell out, Deshaun. Guys, do you want Deshaun to succeed, or do you just want Deshaun to succeed in a way that you've seen somebody else succeed? Because there's a reason why Joe Flacco was on this couch in November. And he walked into the perfect situation for him. It, the Browns have not built this, this thing all around Deshaun. Every single guy offensively doesn't necessarily roll up. If you look at the kind of success he's had with speedy wide receivers, the Browns gave him one this year. Uh, Marquise Goodwin doesn't count because he wasn't really healthy coming off the – he didn't have a full camp coming off the, the blood clot thing. But, like, they gave you Elijah Moore, who the entirety of the time that Deshaun was actually healthy for the first go of it, they tried to use as a gadget player instead of getting him down the field or even getting him in the short field and getting the ball uh, ahead of the line of scrimmage because they were just trying to turn him into a gadget player. That's not the talent that Deshaun can bet. Maybe David Njoku's the kind of talent, but in terms of wide receiver talent, like that's not the kind of talent he's been his best version of himself. Schematically, they didn't deploy the new offense against Cincinnati because of weather conditions. They didn't do it against Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh, um, I mean, made mincemeat out of you and you weren't just trying to like stay keep your head above water in that Pittsburgh game. You didn't see spread concepts on the field until parts of the Tennessee game. And then what happened? Deshaun had his best game in Cleveland in the, to that point, nine games. You look at Arizona, more spread concepts. Deshaun Watson, real good, got good win. Even go to the Baltimore game. It was a little bit more 50-50 schematically about what you did, but you saw more spread concepts. Deshaun got more comfortable. Deshaun felt like he could take more at what was in front of him. 
So I, I, I think we've got to this point where, yeah, you want Deshaun to succeed, but you don't want the offense or the scheme or whatever to be a, an excuse because Joe had success. That's because it fit Joe. And if you want Deshaun to be the best version of him, you've got to put him in the gun. You've got to set out three or four wide, including maybe uh, your running back or your your tight end out wide. And you've got to you've got to open up the field for him and give him time to make plays. That's the only. If you want David and Joe to have 900 yards again next year and six or more touchdowns, that's how you do it. It's not by going back and forcing Deshaun into a scheme that now it's 11 games. It doesn't work for him. It, at least to the, at least to the degree that you've put him in those big big sets, three tight ends, two tight ends, extra linemen concepts. The same offense doesn't fit for everyone, and just because Deshaun hasn't performed well and we're frustrated with him, doesn't mean the Browns should continue to force the square peg into the round hole. Yeah, I I actually will say. Um, the two things that I I don't the two things that tend to get my blood pumping on the Deshaun Watson conversation. One is anything you say that explains why we have yet to see the Deshaun Watson is an excuse. You heard that in the last segment. Two, I actually disagree with Mary Kay. I think you can there are takeaways from this season. Now, it it doesn't trump. It's still such a small sample size of 11 games that it doesn't override or or explain away any concerns that we have. But I, I actually thought we saw a lot of really good things. And I think the Browns now need to build on them going forward. And if Deshaun had played well at the end of the 2022 season, the narrative, and I'm not saying this is a narrative Mary Kay's in, but or using, but the narrative on Deshaun would be completely different because if his numbers this year were what they are, and if he had made, you know, I think it was seven touchdowns, four interceptions, and I think like eleven hundred yards, if 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 that is the same production he had the year before, the narrative would just be about his health, guys. It's no longer about his. It's not. Sorry, it is still about his performance to some degree, but it's shifted now. The health is the bigger concern going into next year. I think some people are conveniently forgetting about that. And I think you can we can start to parse apart why people would still like to hold Deshaun Watson to an impossible standard. 216-474-0092. Real quick, uh, I want to get to the Cavs here. The Cavs are back in town. No Donovan Mitchell tonight. We'll, we'll get to the, some more Cavs here in a moment. But Joe's been waiting patiently. Joe, welcome to the show, buddy. What you got for us? Nick, I just want to say, man, um, I think like, the quarterback in the NFL is is the guy, man, and I think that you have to be fluid in that, and you can't necessarily say like, oh, the system is wrong, or oh, the personnel around him is wrong. If you're the guy, man, you're the guy. You know, I think about like for me or for you, like with your show, if they come in and go, hey, listen, man, the the, the ratings aren't good, you're done. You're not going to be like, well, my producer Keith wasn't giving me good interviews and my exactly co-host what I'll do. giving good giving good uh commentary you know like you're gonna say like what are you gonna say are you gonna throw those two guys under the bus or, yes. or is that a legitimate sort of reason or you know what's the deal I mean I just think that if you're the quarterback it's obviously the central figure in the game of football these days and if you're getting 
that much more pay than other people doing the same job. Like you should be fluid and be able to work within any system, especially if it's effective and the coach that's implementing it has won coach of the year two out of the last, what, four years, five years. Like the guy's got it going on. You should be able to fit within that. Um, I just, that's just not how the NFL works. And, and, and so I, I, the show thing, Joe, and I appreciate you. I would a hundred percent throw Keith under the bus. You already did. Yeah. You already tried it once. Yeah. I tried it. I'll try it every day. If it helps. Um, I will make that excuse and I'll make it again. Hey, bring back Daryl tomorrow. I'll make an excuse at his expense as well. But I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you. The difference between playing in the perfect situation, like I came back to Cleveland because this is the perfect situation. I came back because I have the best producer in America sitting in the board over there. Keith, you know, oh, watch out for Keith. Until I throw him under the bus. I came back because this station is, it's not a joke. It's the best station. There's stability everywhere. We have the best sales staff that I've ever encountered. We have the best leadership I've ever encountered. Um, I wake up every day and listen to other station, uh, other shows in the station. Overtime with Jonathan Peterlin. Uh, I listen to Ken and Anthony. I listen to uh, you know Spencer German when he's on the weekends or G Bush or anybody. And I'm constantly part. It's part of a huge dialogue. That's guys. I don't think we realize how lucky I'm saying as somebody who works in this thing. I'm a steward of this. I'm not a. I I, I we've had a lot of success since I came back. I don't think that's about me. I think that's about us. I think it's about we. I think it is about, holy crap, this thing is talented. I did not have this in Charlotte. And I want to be very respectful because they gave me an opportunity down there and they allowed me a different quality of life because I got, uh, I finally got to work a show where I could be more with my family that was tough when I was at nights here. Um, but I had four bosses, four PDs for Andy Ross in four years. I had three Tom Herschel's in four years. I had two companies. I had three co-hosts. I was solo for half the time. So I didn't have a producer for three of the four years. So if you listen to my show in Charlotte, it wasn't as good as this show. Why? Because the system around me was not conducive to the kind of success that, that I need. And a lot of people in my business think that they invented this thing because they people say they like them or because other people in the local media kiss their ass and make them feel good about themselves. I have no delusions. And so the same thing could be said about the quarterback. If I tried to put uh, Joe Burrow in the wing tee, it'd be an embarrassing misuse of talent. And guys, think about it. What, what was it? It was last year, not, not this last year, but 2022. The Bengals were coming off going to the Super Bowl. The first eight weeks, they were 4-4. Four and four. Remember, the Browns kicked the holy crap out of them on Monday Night Football, destroyed Joe Burrow. What, what did they do? Joe Burrow went to Brian Callahan, the OC, and the head coach, Zach Taylor, and said, none of this crap is working. We need to do things that bring out the best in me. So Joe Burrow, through half an NFL season, struggled. And when I say struggled, I mean he didn't play up to his superstar capability, and they were a 500 team because they weren't maximizing the players they had on offense, including Joe Burrow. We've never had that context. We get we get lured into this illusion with Deshaun Watson because Deshaun because uh, sorry because Pat has been born into, and I, I don't mean to take away. He's phenomenal. 
He's the GOAT. At least he's the in-game GOAT right now. He's not the GOAT GOAT of all time. But he is a spectacle. But if Pat Mahomes had come to Cleveland in 2017, the first two or three years of his career look wildly different if he's got Hugh Jackson as his head coach, if he doesn't sit behind Alex Smith for a year, if he doesn't have Andy Reid building and sculpting an offense around him. That didn't happen. So the same circumstances which they won the Super Bowl this year with, guys, with Pat Mahomes, he doesn't win a Super Bowl with his first year in the NFL. He needed Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, that O-line, that defense, that culture of winning. So that and, – and to get to the point about Kevin, Kevin's a very good head coach. Kevin is a very good play caller when people fit his scheme. But the mark of a truly great play caller is you can call and you can adapt your scheme to fit everybody you have. Again, that's not to mean Kevin is solely responsible for Deshaun. Deshaun's got to own his own thing here. But I've just heard a lot of people echo Joe's sentiments that, oh, guys, come on. Guys, come on. Just just do the thing. If you're a good quarterback, you're the guy. You should just – guys, that's not how it works. Every program, every coach, every play caller, every quarterback is built to conform, and it's a relationship is built to conform to what can you do. Guys, if you threw Lamar Jackson in the West Coast scheme when he was in the, in the – sorry, in this scheme that you run now, this this uh, Gary Kubiak offense, if you threw him in that offense as a rookie, he would not have been any good because it doesn't fit what he does well. So you take what the player does well, what the quarterback does well, what they're comfortable with, and then over time you add other elements – the Browns didn't do that. They ran an offense that they had run, the Gary Kubiak, the West Coast offense, the play-action uh, offense with Jacoby Brissett, and then the justification was we couldn't switch the offense to fit Deshaun Watson the final six games of the year. There's only so much we could do. All right, then they came back last year. They still were play-action heavy. They were still under center a lot, even after the Nick Chubb injury. That's Look at what he did in Houston. I would agree with every single person that called if I didn't see Deshaun Watson in Houston in what was effectively a spread offense that looked nothing like what Bill O'Brien ran in New England with Tom Brady, which was effectively the old Fairbanks, Oklahoma offense, which they ran for 20 damn years. They didn't look anything alike. The Fairbanks offense, which is a game manager kind of system, short passes, get the ball out quickly, run the ball. That's not the same thing as what they ran in Houston. So I have evidence to what it's supposed to look like when when Deshaun Watson is most comfortable and most successful. And you have to mimic that. Deshaun Watson needs an offense around the most comfortable parts of what he does best. He might still be a really good quarterback. He might not be as free to dominate the NFL if you don't build the thing around him the way they have in Kansas City. Big E, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing tonight? Doing well, buddy. What you got for us? First of all, I want to say most of the callers, if they forget that Deshaun Watson, they forget about his collegiate career. They forget about him in Houston. This, When you got a good quarterback, he just he's not going to die overnight. He's not going to just lose his ability to throw the ball overnight. And I agree with you. You got to play call to your quarterback strengths. 
you got a play call to his strengths. And the guy that was saying that the, the last caller that was saying, um, you know, you're not going to throw, he's not going to, you're not going to throw your staff under the bus if, if they're not doing their job. Well, why do coaches get fired? If why, that's the case. Why did Alex why Van Pelt get, get fired? Right. Because they're not playing, play calling to their players' strength. And I, that's all I get to say, man. I want to listen to you guys. Big E, I appreciate you. One, uh, Max, the first fall guy, just so we're clear. Max, sorry, you're the you're you know, newest onboarded here. You've got an Amish beard. Um, you're single. You know, there's like a, a sudden, you know, was it Desperately Seeking Susan vibe to you for any of those 90 sitcoms. Um, Keith's probably the last guy overboard, I'll say. If I start to really, mostly because if things got dicey, he could kick my ass. And I'd like to stave that. I'd like to hold off on the ass kicking for as long as I could before I took the beating I needed to to throw him under the bus and, and preserve myself. But yeah, I, I think, oh, but actually, you know what? It'd be between you and Daryl. Yeah. Depending on my mood with Daryl, there's some days he'd be the first person. I wouldn't even need to throw him under the bus. And I'd be like, you know what? Shark infested waters. There you go, Daryl. Get that ass. Daryl is going to be back with us tomorrow to get that ass on a Friday version of the show. Real quick here. Tommy, we got about 30 seconds, buddy. What you got for us? Thank you so much. All right. Listen, I want Flacco back big time because he knows the fancy's offense. Now, I don't want Watson to quit. I want him to be good. I want him to play well. But he's hurt. So if he gets hurt, if if he gets hurt again, Flacco knows what he's doing. You know what I'm saying? He knows the offense. I think we should bring Flacco back. That's my big thing. Tommy, we appreciate you, buddy. Um, I don't. Mostly because I don't think he fits the system. And if, let's say, Deshaun missed the first part of the season and you had to start the season with a quarterback – that isn't Deshaun, I don't want to be in the same situation as Jacoby Brissett where you get 11 games into the Jacoby Brissett offense and then, oh, sorry, we can't switch it around Deshaun because we don't have enough time. Uh, That doesn't cut mustard for me. Find a quarterback with the same skill set of Deshaun so you don't have to switch up offense if you have to go and switch quarterbacks. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one... They're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.